Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, Nate is joined by author Robert Gordon to discuss his book, Respect Yourself, Stacks Records and the Soul Explosion. In this episode, Robert and Nate discuss the birth and rapid rise of Stax Records, the early hits of Booker T and the MGs, Otis Redding, and Carla Thomas, as well as the political, social, and racial context of Memphis, Tennessee in the 1960s. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to the Let It Roll podcast. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and we've got a special treat, a two-part episode with author Robert Gordon to discuss his classic, Respect Yourself, Stacks, Records, and the Soul Explosion. Robert, thanks for coming back on the show. This is something I've been looking forward to for a long time. Cool, man. Let's let it roll. All right. So, Stacks, Records. I, I just have to start with this great quote you got on the cover from Richard Hell in the Wall Street okay. Journal who called it a joyous and heartbreaking story that says a lot about America. I mean, first off, how in the world does Richard Hell end up doing a book review for the Wall Street Journal? And secondly, man, does that sum up the story? <laughs> well, I can't explain how the what his connection to the journal is, but uh, I was pleased that, you know, I liked that a punk rocker slash poet could be so enthusiastic about the story that made me feel really good and and it really captures the essence of it because you know the music these are the people that brought us Otis Redding and Sam and Dave and Isaac Hayes and Johnny Taylor and you know the Barquets and and Booker T and the MGs and so much great joyous music that has given so many Americans and so many people all around the world so much joy and pleasure and yet when you dive into the story there is heartbreak and violence and crushing <laughs> uh corporate abuse of power financial impropriety gunplay i mean it, it's uh you know so many people who are key to the story that were just i don't know that you could say they weren't treated right but but ultimately uh came to a bad end i'm thinking of packy axton the spirit of memphis right. i'm thinking of al jackson jr the possibly the greatest drummer of all time um you know how do you how do you 
how do you live with a story like this? Because you, you produced a movie for PBS about it by the same title, and then you wrote right. this 500-page tome. I mean, do you find <laughs> the weight of the story kind of overwhelming? Yes, absolutely. It was really hard to get control of. And part of, um, you know, when you read a quote like Richard Hell's in praise of the book, uh, it's so satisfying to me because I felt like by the time I submitted the story for publication that I had gotten control of it. It's, it's unwieldy. And here's actually, here's a, here's a, here's two quick points. One is everybody loves, everybody thinks all the action for stacks is in the first half in, in the Booker T and the MGs, you know, uh, Otis Redding section. But one of the things that my work on stacks revealed was that the second half uh was every bit as exciting. You, you know, there's no, you know, 13 GMGs leave during that part and the whole sort of family atmosphere dissipates, but it was a really exciting period. So that was really cool to get to do that. Um, then the other point I was going to make was when I first pitched this book to a publishing company, I went back to one where I'd already done a book and they had told me, come back anytime and bring any subject. It doesn't have to be music. We think, you know, we, we want to do what you want to do. And I was like, oh, wow, what an invitation. So when I went back to them with this, just in no time, they turned around and said, no, we're, we're going to pass on that. And I was like, what's up? They said, we don't do label books. Well, and I couldn't figure out why would you not do a label book when, when this is so fascinating? And writing it, I, it became clear. There's so many characters that, and everyone's always jostling for the front of the, for the spotlight, you know? So the way I broke it down in my head was I sort of had my, I, I had like A tier, B tier and C tier characters, you know? And surprisingly, the A tier was the two founders, Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton, their siblings, and Al Bell, who became the who was an African-American who joined the company in 1965 and becomes vice president and ultimately sole owner. And then you had all these musicians, the great musicians, they were the B tier. And then the lesser musicians, but important musicians were the C tier. And that made it work. That made it possible to wrangle the whole story. And, and I got to take my hat off to you. I mean, it's, it's a great job. The narrative threads keep pulling you through. Uh, you care about the characters uh, you know, you put this, put on the, say, the Stacks Vault Singles Collections and read this book. And it's just, it's almost, I mean, it's really overwhelming, especially, and we'll get to this at the end of this episode, you know, 1968 was such a heartbreaking year for Stacks in mm -hmm. so many ways. But let's start with the fun stuff first. Like, okay. this is, this is, you're a child of Memphis. And I love this image yeah. that you uh, share in the preface of, mm -hmm. When you were a kid in Memphis in the 70s, there were two limousines to be on the lookout for. Whose who's limousines were driving around town? So, so yeah, we, you know, if you, it, was, it was a time when limos were not common and only celebs and the very wealthy had them. And it, in Memphis, it, it was either uh, Elvis Presley or Isaac Hayes. And, and my brother and I would see one in traffic, you know, in the back seat, we go, mom, mom, pull up. And the only way to know whose was whose was because the license plate 
on Isaac Hayes said Moses or Black Moses. So if it said Moses, you were behind Isaac Hayes. If it didn't, you were behind uh, Elvis Presley. And and I think that bringing in Elvis early on and, and sharing the vividness and the way that Isaac Hayes operated in Memphis in the 70s at his peak as a peer of Elvis, I think that just really says it all. I mean, and, and gives you a, a sense of the magnitude of what that record label meant to that city and and what it meant to the culture of America and what it has meant since then. I don't I think the legacy of Stax has really only grown, you know, more samples than anybody this side of James Brown or George Clinton uh, in the mm-hmm. hip hop world uh, for Isaac Hayes and the and his Stax label mates and and I think, you know, because of South Park and other things, Isaac uh, maybe has been overlooked a little bit. Uh, but when you when you really take in the, the the whole body of work, the songwriter producer for Sam and Dave and 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 the massive hits, the Shaft soundtrack and the, oh, yeah. you know, cultural, you know, he was. He did, he works. Yeah, he was. Exactly. He 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 was a guy. There were there were, you know, in addition to Dr. King's to the riots that were here when Dr. King was killed, the city uh, remained a tinderbox. And there were times in the 70s with the killing of a young teen named Elton Hayes and and other events where riots were about to break out. And they would call Isaac Hayes to calm the crowds, you know, send him out on the street, put him on WDIA radio. Him and Rufus Thomas would be on WDIA, you know, calming the city. It's just wild, the power that Stax had here. And that power, and the city never recognized that power except when it needed it, like in those times. And ultimately, uh, the, you know, the powers that be, both local and federal, turned on Stax in, in a vicious way and, and corporate. But we'll get to that in the second part. I, one thing that I got out of this book that, you know, when you, when you, look at the videos and you watch the the greatest hits of Booker T and MGs, you, you get this vision of integrated joy and that the 60s were this magical time when white musicians and black musicians could come together as equals and make this music that, I mean, that was literally heard around the world. I mean, the favorite band is the Rolling Stones and the Who and the Beatles and so many Brits and, and, and Americans everywhere. But you really bring home, Memphis was a hell of a racist town. Yes, well... That, good. I'm glad that comes across. I mean, because you have to you have to understand that it's funny. I didn't add that thread until later in the process when I realized that the story sort of I think of it like a diamond. You know, uh, a, a jewel looks beautiful in your hand, but when you put it against black velvet, you know, or when you when you when the jeweler gives it the right contrast, then its full uh, luminance can be seen. And the stack story needs the, the angry story, the racist story, the hated, the hated and hateful story of Memphis and um, lots of material there to draw from. Yeah, for sure. And you've got a great sentence uh, in the preface that, that I, I just have to read. It says, the rule that intended to silence instead fostered a voice that outlives those of the tyrants. The blues, rock and roll, and soul music, all indigenous to Memphis and Mississippi, are expressions of the heart and soul in response to, in defiance of the oppression. I mean, 
you know, this music is going to be listened to long after the racist crackers are dead and buried, and and hopefully their racist descendants won't be, uh, you know, proud boying all over our heads um, when that happens. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it does seem like we're just doomed to fight the same fights over and over again. But you know, to me, it's like as long as we've got music like this to listen to, um, well, you know, the best part of humanity is never going to be defeated. And 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 I think that you do a great job of bringing these three characters of, of Jim Stewart and his sister Estelle Axton and their, and their partner, Al Bell out. And, and the story of, of Jim and Estelle is just unique for that time and place. I mean, these, these are hillbilly kids basically who came to the big city and seemingly didn't know enough to be racist. And I think that's about it. You know, not more than that. They didn't know enough, but they had been raised in the country and uh, not in, in, in Tennessee country, uh, not in like big farming, uh, you know, not like in the Mississippi Delta where, the, where there were huge farms. So consequently, the impoverished blacks and the impoverished whites got along because they needed each other to survive. So these people, while, uh, while I'm sure Racism was taught to many families, to, to many playmates of Jim and Estelle. Um, Jim and Estelle were raised to treat people right, you know. And so, and and so when they came here and experienced, when they came to Memphis and experienced racism, they knew it was wrong. And their decision to go into music, you know, was really a a lark in a way it was a sideline um but i think that the part of what drew them was the spirit in memphis expressed on the radio i know estelle was a big fan of dewey phillips dewey's the local disc jockey um who played who who whose radio show was un- unlike any others in the 1950s because he didn't stick to one genre he he he, he you know, went from black music to white music, uh, holy music to secular music, bluegrass to blues. You know, the in a way, I always think this is a little sidetrack, but I think that that Elvis's first single, which was a blues song played like a with the upbeat tempo of a bluegrass song, and the B side was a bluegrass song, kind of dragged out like a blues. That's a summation of the Dewey Phillips aesthetic. And so Dewey, I think, brought Estelle and Jim to music and they resonated with him because in this land of racism, they were people who didn't buy it. And, and, and right out of the gate, uh, they were lucky to have hits. I mean, not their very first recordings, but pretty quickly. And, 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 uh, Carl, Rufus Thomas, who had the first hit record, Bearcat, for Sun Records, had the first hit record for Stax. And he and his daughter, Carla, then go on. Uh, I guess their first hit was a duet with Rufus and, and Carla. And yeah. then Carla does a hit, uh, Gee Whiz. But I want to play a song uh, by a little band that came together in the studio. Actually, it came together in the in the bars and clubs around, or probably in a high school in Memphis. So it was a bunch of white boys who called themselves, what, the Royal Spades, I believe. 
Um, yes, and, that didn't last long. As soon as this dog got involved, that didn't last long. Yeah, and so she had the good sense to kill it and came up with the, the name the Marques, but her son, Packy, uh, a guy who would later be known as the Spirit of Memphis, and you know, ultimately a tragic figure. He dies of alcoholism at 32, but yeah. when he was uh, you know, 18, he's a saxophone player with the confidence and bravado to talk his way into this band, you know, a band with Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn. And uh, they put together an instrumental hit called Last Night, and it was the blending of them in the studio with some African-American musicians that made that happen. Tell us the story of that song, Last Night. Okay, so, yeah, you've got the band, you've got these white kids who are emulating the local African-American band because um, there was a real swinging nightclub scene in Memphis in the late 50s and all through the 50s, from the 40s on. And, um, and what happened was the combos got smaller, you know, as time progressed. And so these, uh, high school teenagers in the late fifties thought they could play those kind of sounds. Um, Packy joins the band. Packy approaches the guys. I love this in the smoking room at high school and, uh, and says he wants to join the band that they're not interested in having anyone else in the band until he says, uh, my, my mom and my uncle have a recording studio and Steve Cropper says, you know, practice is Saturday at three, be there and we'll go check out the recording studio. So, so that's how Packy gets in. All the kids hit it off with, uh, Jim and Estelle help them build this new recording studio in an old movie theater. And once it gets going, Rufus Thomas, well, Rufus Thomas is the first uh, local musician to come in the door, and he begins to record. Estelle has a record store in the front of it. So immediately there's traffic, like in the lobby of the movie theater, it's now a record store, people going in and out. Musicians hear that there's rehearsals in the back. And it's these white kids trying to figure out, you know, how to play. And some of the more experienced musicians begin to blend with them. And Chips Moman, who later becomes the leader at American Studios in Memphis, Chips uh, was responsible for Elvis Presley's comeback in 1968 and, uh, and recorded uh, Dusty in Memphis and a whole bunch of great hits. He began... He was at Stax at the time. It was called Satellite Records before it was called Stax. And um, he brings in, he he sort of guides this mix of black and white and these sounds and produces this song last night that we're about to hear. I love the song. It To me, it catches the excitement and flair and good times. That was, that still goes on on the streets at night in Memphis. There's a little bit of a controversy about the authorship of the song. Should we talk about that or? Let's hear it first, and then we'll talk yeah. about it. Great. So let's let's hear "Last Night" by the Marquees. 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 My bad.
And that was last night by the Marquis. I keep getting that wrong. Uh, named by its still accent. They, the boys didn't want uh, the word, the letter Q in the title, uh, but so they they made it. They spelled it phonetically and come across. But there's a controversy uh, as to who wrote the song and and who got to go out on the road with the song. It was recorded by an integrated band, but when the Marquis hit the road, uh, the the black musicians had to stay home. What was it? What was the deal with that? Yeah, the the, the black musicians were older and one was a school teacher and another had a family here and these white kids were kind of i mean they were they were nothing but you know partying just teenagers um in fact they had to wait for their they had to wait for summer vacation to take the first tour because the drummer was still in in high school um Carl Thomas went on the road with them for a minute and Estelle went out as the chaperone and both of them wanted to come home real quick because these kids were that wild. Then, um, then um, the other controversy had to do with the authorship because these, the two African-American guys, Gilbert Capel and Floyd Newman, Floyd's the one you hear going, Ooh, last night. Uh, they, claimed to have come up with the riff and that the song was theirs and that and there's an interesting character in the book Estelle's husband who's kind of a the racist guy even though Estelle's not he's the alcoholic in the family but he steps up and when he learns that the song might come out without their names he alerts them and protects them so it's a really it's one of those cool little twists where you know, even bad people are doing good things uh, around that place. Yeah, and and it's also important to note that this dude let his wife mortgage their house to to finance Stack's records at the beginning. So you know, Estelle and her husband made a huge contribution, and ultimately, um, Estelle is remembered by many people like Booker T. Jones as the soul of Stack's records. Yeah. You know, the, the proprietor of the record store, the one who brought the kids in, the one who listened, the one who had the ear for the hit. I, it just seems like it's impossible to overstate how big her contribution to Stacks and to American culture was. It is. And at the end of this hour or beginning of the next, we'll talk about how they screwed her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no good person. Uh, no good deed goes unpunished. And around this time, the Stewarts stumble into this deal with the snake in the garden, Jerry Wexler of yeah. Atlantic Records. Although, you know, I mean, Jerry comes out really badly in the Stack story, and he also comes out badly in the in the fame music story as seen in the Muscle Shoals documentary, and he comes out badly in the Burt Burns documentary. Um, but this <laughs> is a guy who did a lot of great things for American music, who really loved music and loved the musicians, who got the music, who was a great writer and producer, you know, brought us Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin, among others, and brought us Stack's records for a long time. This business deal they cut with Atlantic was really successful for the company. He's the one who hears, uh, he gets a tip from a local record man about that first Rufus and Carla song, uh, Because I Love You, it's called. And, um, and he signs them to Atlantic, or he, he makes a distribution deal with Stax right then and there. Sta uh, Jim Stewart thinks he's made the deal for that song um, and that group, that duet. But, but um, ultimately, they hammer out a deal 
they agree to a deal verbally between that that Atlantic will distribute anything by Stacks because uh, Stacks knows it's easy to record the records, but it's very hard to get them out. And Atlantic has set up a really great distribution system for independent labels. It gives them a fighting chance. So um, Atlantic becomes essential in the in the company's success and Jerry Wexler and Tom Dowd from Atlantic they become mentors to everybody and I'm going to jump ahead for a minute and sort of tell those expose the snake if you will um, by all means because the so so then so so they hammer out this agreement or they agree to this thing in 1960-61 then come about 1965 um, Jerry Wexler says hey We've been doing all this on a handshake. Let's uh, let's make a deal. Let's write it down. And he sends down a contract that Jim Stewart does not read, signs but does not read. Jim basically says, "Hey, does this say what we've been doing?" And Jerry says, "Yeah, yeah. You know, it just uh, writes down what we've been doing." And so Jim Stewart, who had been in business school and had considered law school is shocking does not read the contract signs it and it turns out when in 1968 um atlantic and stacks are going to part ways stacks learns then and then only that uh they that the contract signed in 1965 made every record that they put out that was just distributed by Atlantic, meaning everything from 19, basically 1959 to 1968, the property of Atlantic records. Atlantic took the Stacks Masters in that deal. It's a, I'm sure that Atlantic put that in as a negotiating point for Stacks to take out, but that would have required Stacks to read the deal. Um, and what's most amazing to me about the whole thing is that as angry as the people at Stacks were, even when I was speaking to them, you know, a few years ago, you, you, you talk about this with Steve Cropper and you sense his ongoing anger. Yet at the same time, he admires Wexler, you know, which I think indicates the magnitude of Wexler's contribution to people accept. Absolutely. And, and one of his contributions was uh, through his connections, a kid from Macon, Georgia walks in the door as a chauffeur. And uh, he's there to back up a guitar player named Johnny Tinkins, who's, who's drawn some attention around the Macon scene. They drive up, drive all night to get to, to Memphis. They Things don't work out. Johnny Tinkins just doesn't have it in the studio. And and this kid, Otis Redding, gets to sing two songs at the end. One is the Little Richard knockoff, and the other one is the song we're going to hear now, These Arms of Mine. Let's listen to Otis, and then we'll talk about the, the king of stats. Sounds great. Arms of mine. Yearning 
that was These Arms of Mine, the first song that Otis Redding recorded uh, in the Stack studio. And Steve Cropper says when he heard that, that the hairs on his arm and neck just stood straight up and he knew that he was in the presence of greatness immediately. Jim Stewart says it took till the third single for him to really get Otis. But I mean, talk about luck. Like these, these, this little family opens up this studio and you get talent like Booker T. Jones and Steve Cropper and the Thomas family walking in the door. And then to have Otis Redding you know, the man who becomes the heir to Sam Cooke is the king of soul to walk in the door like this unheralded and unsung. I mean, <laughs> you know, is that just fate or what? What, how does stuff like that happen? Well, it almost doesn't happen is how it happens. You know, I mean, like you said, it was a Johnny Jenkins session and, uh, when, and Otis kept begging for a chance. And when they finally remembered to let him demo, uh, Steve Cropper had a run out. And he told Louis Steinberg, the bass player, who was packing up for who, whose car, you know, he, who was packing up his car for his gig. He said, "Louis, get your bass, come back inside. We're going to do a another one." You know, I mean, it was that close to not happening. The, the, you know, four more minutes and the car would have been gone. So uh, I think a lot of it. I think the other key thing is is is, is being open to that kind of accident. Um, Stax was a series of mistakes that went right. And, and it was in part because there, there wasn't a vision. You know, Jim Stewart's vision had been to record Jim Reeves-style country songs. So once he starts having African-American hits, you know, he's got no real vision for what things are going to be. So it becomes this sort of democracy where Estelle has a voice and Steve Cropper has a voice and Booker T has a voice and, and Jim Stewart is not domineering. You know, he's, he's allowing it all to happen. He's taking, he, he may have 51% of the say, or the majority say, but he, you know, is really, collaborative in terms of the ideas. And I think that that kind of attitude is hard to find and a little risky perhaps, but it does provide the atmosphere where beautiful accidents can bloom. Yeah, and it does. And I want to, there's a quote from Booker T. Jones about Otis Redding that I think sums up Otis's leadership um, and what, you know, Steve Cropper says he, Otis put a spark under stacks, but, but Booker T mm -hmm. seems, says that Otis Redding seemed to be a man on a mission and we picked up that mission and it became all of ours. His intent was so strong and so powerful when we were recording that it translated to more than music, more than being heard. Otis wanted to be felt. And that's, uh, you know, that's how Otis Redding became the leader of stacks. And, and, you know, when they tour Europe in 67 and then play Monterey, or tour Europe in 66 and play Monterey in 67, I mean, Otis is the man in the front uh, leading the charge and having the breakthrough. Otis is the one that John Lennon and Mick Jagger are singing the praises of. It, it's And it's also one of the joys of reading this story is, other than some disputed song credits and philandering on his wife, Otis Redding comes across as just a great guy. He was, well, I think you picked a great quote uh, from Booker. I mean, 
he he had a mission. He was driven. And um, I like there's a Wayne Jackson quote where where Wayne talks about the way Otis would teach the horn players to do what he heard in his head because that was the thing. Otis heard it in his head, and and the musicians who couldn't you know they could read comic books but they couldn't read music. Um, they they weren't you know they they could hear they could take his kind of instruction. Oh, you want to do it like you know, like Wayne says, Otis would get in their face and go, and go, you know, like that song by Otis grew out of Otis teaching them a horn riff. You know, he wanted them to play it like this. And suddenly they made a whole, they made a whole song out of it. Um, So it's that Otis could hear it in his head and that these guys could take Otis's in instruction um and and he inspired them all another uh, just another way to to spin here um booker also describes uh i mean as we're getting the sense of of of, of otis's energy otis, uh booker d- describes al bell as the otis reading of business which i think <laughs> says a lot uh because al had a vision like Otis had a vision just in a different realm. Yeah. And Al Bell comes into the story, you know, in the mid part of the sixties, although uh, Jim Stewart meets him, I think literally the first time he goes to a radio station to promote one of his records, Al Bell's a DJ there and they meet and Al Bell is this amazing charismatic figure. I mean, he's, he's a classic black Panther type figure of the sixties. I mean, he's six foot five, he's handsome, he's articulate, he's smart as shit. Uh, he's a kid who grew up, uh, I believe, in Arkansas and mm-hmm. had been told, you know, black people can't do nothing but sing and dance. And they didn't use the word black people. And and he sees that and it clicks in his head. That's my opportunity. That's the open lane that, that white, the white man will let me take. And, you know, that kid took it as far as as the society would let him and way beyond. Yeah. Um, yes, he turned an adversarial or a um like he used to say he you know that's not a when, when he heard that about uh black people singing and dancing um he said that's not a negative that's a positive i can make money at that you know he he had a way of seeing where things could go um and that stacks he brought radio, as you said, he got a start in radio. So when he became head of promotions at Stax, he knew how to handle the disc jockeys. He had the energy to start, you know, with the morning jocks on the East Coast and end with the evening jocks on the West Coast. And and he had the gift of gab, could talk all day and stay interesting, you know. Um, so he was a remarkable guy. He is a remarkable guy. And then I think the key anecdote about his relationship with Jim Stewart was that his first day of the job, he shares an office with Jim Stewart and shares a phone with Jim Stewart. And this is in this yeah. incredibly segregated society. I mean, literally, when Jerry Wexler first came down to sign a deal, he and Jim Stewart could not go out to dinner with Rufus and Carla Thomas because of, of the color line. And here's this white man 
just passing the phone receiver back and forth to Al Bell, a black man, all day long. And and Al Bell really appreciated that. I mean, he he yeah. he appreciated what what um, the Stewart and and Axon had done for for him and for Black Memphis. And at the same time. Some of the he's the one that pushes Estelle Axon out. He's the one who who marginalizes Steve Cropper. So many, you know, it, it's like so often in the stack story, the very step that advances the cause is the thing that lays the seeds for the downfall. It's just Shakespearean. This tale. It is. I thought of it as uh, as as like uh, a double Greek myth or Greek tragedy. You know. Um, uh, stellar heights are achieved and then a dramatic and seeming um you know fatal fall followed by yet an, another rise and, and and one important point about that phone going back and forth is that when al would hand it to jim when the when the black man would hand it to the white man the white man did not clean the receiver you know there, there was no in something as intimate as that, there was no suggestion of superiority or inferiority. And that it's really that detail, I think, that, that is the key in there. Yeah, and and the this theme of the the Greek tragedy and the and the greatness being tied to the downfall, to take it back to the snake in the garden, Jerry Wexler, Wexler not only brings the music of Stax to the world, but he brings artists into Stax to make great music, not just Sam and Dave, who were Atlantic artists the whole time, but also Wilson Pickett and Don Covey, and really established Stax as one of the key musical centers for recording in this era. And to bring, you know, and yet, you know, Steve Cropper and Wilson Pickett get together the first time they meet. I think they write, they co-write in the midnight hour. And yet I think by Pickett's second session at Stax, he's pissed the band off so much that, that they're all taking a smoke break to get away from him. And he tries to pass out hundred dollar bills and they're just even more incensed and refuse to record with this guy anymore. I mean, how the hell does that happen that, that people can make that kind of great music together and just not be able to stand each other's presence? Uh, you know, th that's the arts, right? I mean, I haven't seen this new Laurel and Hardy film, but I understand that they didn't, you know, necessarily get along. And, you know, Sam and Dave didn't even speak to each other during their later years of touring. Um, you know, I don't think it's, it's terribly uncommon, uh, especially for partnerships when people are young because they get kind of, they, they end up feeling trapped. Um, I don't know. That's, you know, we'll, we'll leave that to a psychologist to unravel for us. Um, but the, but I think that the Wilson Pickett story is characteristic of Wilson himself. He was by all accounts, a really difficult guy. Um, you know, they, they had a hit right off the bat. And he and Cropper were uh, important partners in songwriting, but I don't think that they could survive. You know, they couldn't survive it when when that's really what closes Stacks to outsiders in a way. The, the the second recording session with Wilson Pickett goes so badly that 
Jerry that um, Jim tells Jerry at Atlantic, don't you know, don't send us anymore. We we don't want Don Covey. We don't want Wilson Pickett. Um, thanks for telling us about uh, Aretha Franklin. We're going to pass on that too. You know, I mean, it led to some negative decisions, but uh, but it let Stax become more insular uh, and 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 familial place. You know. It kept that sense of family a lot longer, I think. Absolutely. And and let's hear the product of, of the Atlantic Stacks marriage that, that was became the deepest part of the Stacks family, which is Sam and Dave and their classic Hold On, I'm a Coming, written by Isaac Hayes and David Porter, the first really great songwriting team to emerge at Stacks. So let's hear it. Hold On, I'm a Coming. Sam and Dave's classic, uh, for my money, probably the quintessential Stack Sixty song. And, and even though Otis Redding is is you know the the front man of Stax and the apotheosis, and I don't think Sam and Dave ever matched an album like Otis Blue, and 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 didn't match the performance at Monterey, but they pushed him to the absolute limit, both in the studio uh, with great hits like that, and also as a live act. You know yeah. when they toured, you know Otis Redding was a kid who when he started out stood stock still on stage or maybe raised yeah. one arm and then he <laughs> has to he has to follow these two dynamos who are just fueled by testosterone and rivalry and and never clicked as people but clicked so brilliantly as as, as performers as performers you know the, the intensity and if you see footage of sam and dave especially backed by booker t and mgs oh my god you can see where otis redding would be scared to death and and somebody like otis redding doesn't buckle though otis redding blossoms in the face of that well yeah um you know otis doesn't follow them until the 67 europe tour and when he realizes when he sees them on stage and realizes that he's got to go out and top that al bell said he was like that otis was like a uh racehorse at the gate you know he just sort of psyched himself up and became this guy working him in place backstage that and and awaiting that bell to be called out to go out and and throw himself into it like you know nobody's business um it's a great r- rivalry it's it's i think your description was right on it took the rivalry of sam and dave the you know interact rivalry to um spirit otis into the intra act and and right. one of the one of the other seeds of the of the downfall of the original family atmosphere at stacks was that the performers started getting paid the songwriters especially were getting paid the record label was getting paid but the musicians were struggling you know running from session to gig to session to gig and al bell figured out a way to make that work at least for the core members of the band you know what they call the big six which was the four members of booker t and the mgs as well as the songwriting team of of isaac hayes and david porter and so they each became independent producers and and had their own artists and and but then split the pie equally 
And that magical chemistry of Hayes and Porter and Hayes and Porter with Sam and Dave, it lasts just a short time. It just really lasts for the Sam and Dave era. As soon as Atlantic pulls away from Stax, they take Sam and Dave with them. Sam and Dave never really click again. And and we'll talk about this in the next episode, but Hayes and Porter drift away too. But right. just talk about the magic of that four-way chemistry for a minute and, or six-way chemistry with the whole band there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so go ahead. You've got, you, you've got, um, in a, in, in a way, the first th- thing to note is that Sam and Dave aren't like, aren't like the Everly brothers. They're not this duo that harmonizes beautifully. They are in a way, um, the, they are sort of like each is a leader and each is a, each is a chorus. They, they, push each other more than they harmonize with each other. So it's something, it's, there's just uh, built-in energy uh, in their partnership. And then Isaac Hayes and David Porter are uh, bringing the energy of their own partnership to the two of them. Isaac and David produce their sessions and um, Isaac will have, you know, Isaac will sort of, lead the music and David is kind of like the, the choir director. He's the one, uh, he's the music director in a way, sort of pointing out who to do what, when there's a great moment. It was just in, um, Oh, is this, hold on. I'm coming or so man, where, where, uh, Sam says just, you know, uh, burst with enthusiasm, spontaneous enthusiasm says, play it, Steve, as, uh, Steve is going into a slide guitar solo. Um, the, 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 it was just one big unified group in there. Four MGs, Hayes and Porter, uh, Hayes at the piano, Porter in front of the whole group, and uh, Sam and Dave in, fr- in, in front of everybody with Jim in the control room. Um, I mean, it was just a, there, there was nothing wasted and there was nothing there that didn't need to be there they were all contributing and making this mighty sound and isaac and david are bringing a social consciousness to the music as well because by the time sam and dave are happening you know the uh civil rights movement is well underway sam and dave come to stacks in 1965 so um the civil rights act is fresh uh, you know, Voting Act, housing, all these major, this overhaul of American society is happening. And, and with things like Soul Man and, and Hold On, I'm Coming, David and Isaac are infusing the power of the moment into the songs. And I think that they're being expressed by an integrated band in this studio also adds power to it. Um, at the very beginning of the show, we were talking about how the uh, m- music made by those who were oppressed will out will you know survive will outlast the oppressors. And I think uh, "Hold On, I'm Coming" is a great example of that. People are going to be dancing on the dance floor to that long after they're even thinking about uh, the uh, racial problems of the 1960s. Absolutely. And, and, and Otis Redding tours Europe 
you know, the, the whole stacks review with Booker T and the MGs and Sam and Dave and, and headline by Otis Redding has a spectacularly successful tour of Europe in which they see, by the way, they're treated in England. They realize, wow, we are stars. They've been kind of holed away in the studio or out on the Chitlin circuit. And, you know, to be greeted by the Beatles limos at the London airport, you know, and, and this is just a year or so after Brian Epstein had called up and asked about recording the Beatles at Stax. I mean, out of all the studios right. in the world, the Beatles wanted to record at Stax if they were going to leave Abbey Road. And it didn't work out because of the publicity. But, you know, and then this sets up their, you know, Otis's triumphant performance at Monterey that really broke him through to the national crowd. I mean, not only did Monterey pop break, you know, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, but it broke Otis Redding wide open. And and and, yeah. and then he has a surgery on his voice, takes a few months off, and he's obsessed with Sgt. Pepper and yeah. spends his time in the woodshed. And and you know, for a guy who basically the knock on Otis's songwriting early on is that he didn't view the lyrics mattered. It's very much like John a young John Lennon, like we care about the sound, man. We don't care about the words. And right. Otis has this breakthrough and and pours out all of basically all the compositions he's best known for dock of the bay too hot to handle etc and finds a young band that he can take on the road with him in the bar K's who are who had been just kids hanging around pestering uh you know the booker t and the mgs for time to play and steve cropper had told him at one point you know you don't you guys just don't have it but they didn't listen and kept coming back and right. and you know they record um this last song we're going to play on the show soul finger which is an instrumental. Uh, let's hear it, and then you can tell us about Soulfinger and the Barcades. was Soulfinger, the breakout hit by the Barquets, a young band on the cusp of greatness who would go on to great things in a modified form in the 70s, but tragedy strikes. I mean, Otis Redding yeah. uh, uh, takes them on as his road band, but because these kids are in high school and, and starting college, he wants to get them home uh, on Monday mornings fresh, so he buys a plane so that right. they can tour together, not not as a front man. He didn't do like James Brown, where it's just James Brown and the drummer, or James Brown and whoever he wants to intimidate, and the rest of the band is on the bus. Otis and the band are on this little plane together, and it very quickly uh, ends in tragedy. Tell us about the tragic events in, in the Great Lakes. Yeah, so, so the Barquets were neighborhood kids. Otis, I mean, literally, like from the Stacks neighborhood, um, emulating Booker T and the MGs and Otis hears them in a local club and just can't believe their energy and, and brings them on. There's actually video. We show one of the songs in its entirety in the Stax Records documentary, 36 hours. So, so they go on a last weekend. Otis has this voice issue. He comes back. He records Doc of the Bay and all these songs. And he's got like three weeks in the studio. Normally they'd have to catch Otis for like three hours in the studio, but um, because he's been he's been sick, he's, he doesn't have a tour booked and he's just 
spilling out with all these songs and great new sounds. They go, uh, he leaves on a Friday and says, uh, see y'all Monday. You know, they go to, let's see, they go to Nashville. Then they go to Cleveland. And in Cleveland, they record TV. You see this great three-song set or two-song set of, book of uh, Otis backed by the young Barquets. These kids are babies, you know, and they are so full of energy and they're standing so still. It's just remarkable to see it. Not so still, but, you know, they're, they're banging it out so casually. It's like they've already got all the confidence in the world. And then they get on it. They do a gig that night. They get on a plane to go to uh, Madison, Wisconsin, I think. Madison, Wisconsin the next morning. Yeah. And it's uh, bitterly cold. And the pilot doesn't have experience in that kind of weather where over water, apparently, the controls respond differently over water in that kind of cold. And coming down in cloud cover, the pilot just missed the runway. He he thought he was at the runway and he wasn't. Went down the lake and... um, and there's great a great interview with the sole survivor of the plane crash, um, the trumpet player Ben Colley, one of the young kids in the bar caves. So it's Otis, the pilot, a valet, and I think four, three or four bar, other bar caves. Yeah, it was. Uh, uh, you've got a, a list here: Jimmy King, age 18, guitarist; Carl Cunningham, age 18, drummer. Baylon Jones, age 19, saxophonist. Ronnie Caldwell, age 19, organist. Matthew Kelly, age 17, valet. Richard Fraser, age 26, pilot. Otis Redding, age 26, star. And I, I can't help but break up every time. I know, man. It, it kills me. Right, I, I, Writing that section was unbelievably draining. And now, just even talking about it, the sadness of those lives cut short is just really hard to get around you know it's yeah really, really tough. And, uh, and and you know that music yes hear it you know it's like, oh my god these guys were in the in the springtime of their lives and and yeah. just beginning to show flowers oh. yeah i mean you know otis has doc in the bay in the studio not yet released and and you just you know it's so much like sam cook his mentor and it's sort of like you know choose your heroes carefully because his fate intertwined so much with Sam Cooke just as he peaks, just as he matures as an artist and, and it breaks through as a star he's taken from us. But, but Booker T says something in the forward that I think is important to remember. And that, um, uh, he says, when I reached the account of Otis Redding's plane crash, I realized I had arrived at the belly of the book, emotion brimming. I wanted to call Robert. Not that I had anything particular to say. I just wanted to hear his voice. Um, I thought he would understand what I was feeling, a sense of loss for the whole world and for Stax and for Memphis. But then he says, but the older, wiser Booker knows to be thankful for the time spent with them and to minimize regrets as much as possible by thinking of the happy times. And that, I think, is, uh, you know, a great place to end this episode is just to be thankful for the happy times. I mean, you know, we can be sad that that we didn't get to hear what the Barquets could do. And I mean, and this was a hot young band. I mean, comparable, I think, to the Collins brothers and what they would do as the JBs with James Brown. I mean, they had literally just played with Otis and James Brown at the Apollo. And, 
you know, these were kids that were going to, you know, their bandmates went on to become a huge part of the funk revolution of the 70s. Otis is just blooming as an artist, but fuck it, man. We got to live in a world where we can hear Dr. Bay and Otis Blue and 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 Soulfinger. And and I'm thankful for that. And and I'm thankful That's for having good. you on the show. And we're gonna come right back and record part two. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Come back next week for part two of Nate's conversation with Robert Gordon chronicling the history of Stax Records. Respect yourself. Stacks Records and the Soul Explosion by Robert Gordon is available from Bloomsbury and can be found wherever fine books are sold.